Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Cordelia Carter. Dr. Carter is an orthopedic surgeon specializing in pediatric orthopedic surgery and sports medicine at NYU. In addition to her clinical responsibilities as a pediatric sports surgeon, Dr. Carter is also a dedicated team physician, an advocate for improving the musculoskeletal health of female athletes, and a prolific researcher investigating gender-specific outcomes in sports medicine, as well as physician burnout and harassment in orthopedic surgery. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Cordelia Carter. I want to take a moment to talk about a great company that I recently discovered. I know we are all now in search of a new scrub provider given recent events. I want to share with you a company called Just Cause Scrubs that was created by an orthopedic oncologist by the name of Dr. Scott Porter. Just Cause Scrubs is an amazing scrub and medical-related apparel company with a humanitarian focus. Just Cause Scrubs donates 50% of all of their profits to the charity of the customer's choice. What's also amazing is that they're offering 10% off for the listeners of the She Can Fix It podcast. Visit www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order. With the holiday season coming up, a nice pair of embroidered scrubs is looking like the perfect gift. Again, the website is www.justcausescrubs.com slash shecanfixit to get 10% off your order and support a just cause. Dr. Cordelia Carter, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I'm very excited to speak with you, um, and I'm very much appreciating your NYU background. <laughs> oh, thank you so much on my, uh, on my Zoom. Well, I'm delighted yes. to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited for what I know will be a really fun uh, and hopefully super interesting conversation. Perfect. So, Dr. Carter, what I would love to start with is your background, um, hometown, college, medical school, residency, and beyond. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Delaware, which not that many people uh, get to say, but I think that those of us who did grow up in Delaware, um, I have actually met Joe Biden. Uh, oh, nice. Delaware is a tiny little place. I met him at the <laughs> coffee shop there. Um, <laughs> and he just, I was with my sister and he just said, hey, girls. Um, so I, I grew up in Delaware. Uh, nice. And then I went from there to uh, Yale for college. I played field hockey in uh, Delaware, and I played for a, a school that uh, was pretty strong. And so actually a couple of us went and played at Yale um, in college. So I played field hockey in college at Yale. And then um, I loved it so much that I did go back to Yale for medical school, although I took a little bit of time in between. I moved to Tokyo. Uh, oh. I was a, Yep. I was, um, I was a middle school science teacher in Tokyo. That was pretty funny. Uh, when, I, I, when I told my students that I was leaving to go to medical school at the end of the year, one of them said, Miss Carter, I know why you're going to go to medical school. You don't have any patients. Oh and, uh, right. So, and, and that's probably how I ended up an orthopedic surgeon as well, I suppose. Oh my God. That's but, hilarious. <laughs> uh, 
And then after medical school, I, um, I had selected orthopedic surgery and I did that at Columbia, uh, Columbia Presbyterian in New York City. And then uh, from there, I did a fellowship in pediatric orthopedic surgery at University of Southern California, which is the Children's uh, Hospital in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then my second fellowship was at Boston Children's Hospital in pediatric sports medicine. And that means I am 100 years old. <laughs> lots and lots of training. When, during your career, did you know that you wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon? Uh, pretty, uh, pretty much down to the wire, actually. You know, I, um, I was, I didn't have uh, doctor role models at home. I didn't have anybody in the family mm -hmm. really that was a doctor. Um, and, and so I, but I, for some reason, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to be a pediatrician, which I suppose is because that's the kind of doctor that I'd seen modeled for me. Right. Um, and because I really do love working with kids and, and that was, uh, truthfully the plan until, um, right before, you know, until like the last year when I was actually applying to match into residencies mm. and, um, and I had a general surgeon who said, you know, I really think you have a surgery personality. I think you'd enjoy that. And then, um. Uh, you know, I, this this is actually one of the pieces of advice I typically give to students is is like ask a lot of questions because I didn't ask a lot of questions actually. I just mm. have had some people say, well, hey, you got a really high board score and you played sports, like you should do ortho, um, and and I did and I rotated and loved it and you you kind of feel like you found your you know you found your people, right? Um, and so, uh, but it wasn't it, it you know I think for many people who go into orthopedic surgery. Um, they, well, for a long time, it was, uh, guys whose dads were orthopedic surgeons. And now we have a whole wave of women whose fathers were orthopedic right, surgeons. Right. And so I guess the next wave will be hopefully girls whose mothers are <laughs> orthopedic surgeons. Um, but, uh, that wasn't, that wasn't actually how I came to it. It was, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I knew I wanted to work with kids and then orthopedic surgery came a little bit later. Nice. And then you further subspecialized such that you do pediatric sports medicine. Is that right? Yep. How um, did you get, get onto that path? Yeah. So uh, these are actually, this is two pieces of advice I, I usually give. So I did know that I wanted to work with kids. And so um, one piece of advice I usually say is like, you know, doors never fully close or if a door closes like you know the, a window opens and so even mm -hmm. even choosing orthopedic surgery you're not giving up the chance to work with kids and same and sort of same thing with uh, sports medicine and so I, I sort of um uh, I I uh it wasn't always planned but I I sometimes really do think and I've actually said this before that um that a circuitous route can kind of is a little more purposeful and you end up in the right spot uh right. even sometimes it's, maybe it's better to not know or to know enough, but not, um, you know, to keep an open mind as you're sort of like finding your way at the end. So um, I knew I wanted to work with kids. I knew I could do that in pediatric orthopedics. And then, um, I, you know, I had played sports my whole life. I've had a ton of injuries and I, and that's, mm -hmm. um, those are the kids that I, I felt uh, like I could help the most. Nice. And I think one of the interesting things um, that maybe some of our listeners may not know is that treating children is different. They are not small adults, and that is certainly true when it comes to orthopedics. And so I was hoping you can provide just like a brief introduction to why we treat kids differently than adults in the orthopedic world. 
Sure. Well, you know, first, the thing we usually focus on is their physiology or their anatomy, right? Like how kids are just physically different and they're not just right, like a scaled down version of an adult, but, right. um, but, uh, you know, their, their bone structure is frankly different. Like we, and we worry so much about the growth plate. So, um, and sometimes the growth plates can be wonderful in terms of having a fracture because they confer the ability to remodel a crooked bone mm-hmm. into a straight bone over time, which is something that an you know, adult is, not, is unable to do. And yet injury to a growth plate actually can cause longer term problem in a child who's still growing. And so I think that's the most sort of obvious way that we think about um, pediatric orthopedics is thinking about the growth plate and how it affects our decision making. Nice. Um, something I think we underestimate where, and at least in the sports world, we're just becoming to get a better, um, becoming to have a better handle on is, um, developmentally. So hmm. for example, I see a ton of kids who have ACL injuries is something that we, you know, that we take care of routinely. And the treatment for that is an ACL reconstruction, even in a, even in a young kid, even in a kid who has open growth plates, it's still an ACL reconstruction. We actually make a new one to, mm-hmm. you know, get them back to the sport or activity that they want to do with a stable knee. So we restore function and then we try to prevent additional injuries and ultimately arthritis in that knee. Um, and so for a long time in the pediatric sports medicine world, we, we talked about the growth plates. We talked about, well, how do we have to modify our techniques to suit the anatomy and, and physiology of a specific child in a specific, you know, time um, in his or her life and, and mm-hmm. with and trying to predict how much growth there was and whether they'd be okay to have an adult type reconstruction or whether we had to do, and there's several different growth plate sparing techniques that, um, that I do, um, for, you know, for kids who are still growing and yet have ACL incompetence. But I think one of the things that we ignored for a while is really is their like developmental and behavioral level. And what I mean by that is, um, while we talk so much about the growth plate, it's actually rare to have a growth plate injury that that we say is iatrogenic, that we've inadvertently caused it by drilling right. tunnels to make our ACL reconstruction. It, cer- it certainly can happen. It has certainly been described, but it is not um, it is not super common. But the thing that is incredibly um, and catastrophically common in uh, pediatrics and pediatric sports medicine is re-tearing of an ACL reconstruction. And, you know, the number we quote is as high as 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it's not something we talk about, I think, so much. And, and when we do, we, we talk about, well, initially, again, how can we change our technique? And now we talk about how can we change our rehab, like to make sure, you know, right. and our, and our criteria for clearing kids to return to sport. We, mm-hmm. We're now starting to incorporate psychological readiness. So not just, you know, are they are we ready physically, but actually are we mentally ready? But, you know, the thing that um, is the real uh, bugaboo, I think, about treating like a 13 or 14 year old is, you know, their developmental level is one in which they literally cannot see into the future and appreciate how a decision that they make at the time is going to affect the future. Right. Like it's just mm-hmm. not it's it's part of that developmental level. And so, well, and a prepubertal kid is a kid who actually can't follow instructions sometimes because they don't remember to. But right. like an adolescent child um, or an, an adolescent uh, can't follow post-operative instructions because they simply choose not to. And so, right, because they, yeah. they don't understand like how, how really um, dire the consequences might be. And that's not something that we see in adults or is certainly to that extent. And so I think, um, I think that's something that's really interesting about taking care of kids is figuring out how to, how to, how to have them buy into their own healthcare, right? How to have them be right. invested in it to, to actually make good decisions. 
Wow. That's, I literally never even heard about that. So that's really, <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of ACL injuries in the sports world, you are someone who has played, coached sports all throughout your life. So I think it's safe to say that sports is a passion for you. Um, and one of the benefits that you have as a sports medicine surgeon is that you are a team physician. And I believe you're the team physician for the National Women's Hockey League. I am a team physician. So for a, a long time, physician. I was um, the team physician for the Connecticut Whale, which was one of the first teams in the National Women's Hockey League. And then nice. uh, when I moved to New York, I became one of the team docs. Uh, but I added to there's already several docs. I'm part of that team who takes care of the Metropolitan Riveters. Um, nice. but that's can you super... just talk about like life as a team physician, you know, the responsibilities, the perks, the downsides of such a role? Uh, sure. Actually, I'll tell you the, and the another one that I, I recently gotten to uh, become a team doc for is the US ski and snowboard team, um, oh. which is has also been uh, super fun. So um, and I've taken care of college teams. Actually, when I was I was faculty at Yale for a little bit and um, mm -hmm. I got to help take care of those teams, which had been fun because I used to play for those teams. Right. Um, oh. So let's see. So I think, you know, the responsibilities of being a team physician are, I mean, you're, well, you're, you care certainly for musculoskeletal health of athletes, but actually it's a lot more uh, global than that in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, it's, it's again, like thinking about their mental health, are they getting enough sleep? What's their nutrition like? Um, how's school going? I mean, I think it's, you know, it's really to have a high functioning athlete. It's everything has to be sort of like ticking along. Um, and I actually love that the NCAA, the, the chief medical officer for the NCAA, it works, um, works with me at NYU. Every time I hear him talk, he's such a proponent of thinking about and addressing, you know, mental health concerns in, um, in NCAA athletes. And this was even before COVID where, you know, all of those things came even a little bit more to the forefront, but, you right. know, so the responsibilities are really to be available certainly on the sidelines, oftentimes in the training room, but for athletes to come in with, with whatever problem they might have, oftentimes musculoskeletal, like maybe it's an acute injury that, ha and you're there, you know, taking care of them on the sideline. Um, or, or maybe it's something that's more nagging, whatever it might be. And the trainer comes to you and says, Hey, I need to take a look at this. And then you're deciding whether or not they need to have imaging or, um, or therapy or, you know, what the intervention or additional workup would be. Um, I mean, I think the perks to it are, at, at least for me as somebody who always played team sports is that, you know, I get to feel still like I'm part of a team. Yeah. Uh, right. And I, I think, um, it's funny. I get like, just as I think we're probably not supposed to cheer as much as I do, but like, I get so excited, <laughs> right. Um, watching them play and, and, um, and I get just as down, you know, when they lose. So, um, I think that, that a perk is really getting to still be a part of that environment and to get to be really invested in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think, I mean, I think that there are very few downsides, which is why so many of us love to do it. I mean, I, I think just like anything else, if a downside could simply be it's, it is a time commitment. And so, and oftentimes it's in addition to your, our regular work, right? It's in addition right. to seeing patients in the office and taking care of them in the operating room and um, any research or educational stuff, right? It's, it's sort of one more thing. And, and then that whittles down the time that you have to do stuff outside of work. But so right. I think if there was a downside, that would be the only one I can think of. Um, although with my, uh, with my new, I've only gotten to do one trip because again, because of COVID this last year, but, um, mm -hmm. I got to go last February to, uh, to Sapporo. Was that oh. true? Maybe. Yeah. 
so Japan, <laughs> maybe I'm just remembering the beer. Uh, I, <laughs> I got to cover U.S. Uh, I've been to there. I've been, I, I've been to Sephora more than once. But anyway, I definitely was. <laughs> you were, you were in men. Japan yeah, in was, February 2020. You were there. in that country. <laughs> and there was a lot of snow uh, to cover U.S. <laughs> men ski jumping. And so I think um, certainly at that level, the getting to... Um, will take care of elite, you know, that level of elite athlete, but then also to get to do some of the fun travel and experience more of the world, um, is awesome. So that's a real perk. Uh, Mm. so, and as I said, I think there are very few downsides. Yeah. What has been your favorite memory as a team physician? Uh, you know, that, that might be it actually. Japan was super fun. I mean, I think, Mm um, although, that, so I will say that that is was more um, fun for me because those guys, by and large, re- remained pretty healthy. And so I, right. I wasn't I, I didn't I didn't, um, you know, I wasn't out there saving lives. Certainly with that trip, it was just it was just so fun to be affiliated with it. Um, I think uh, I, so then I actually I'll say from my working with the National Women's Hockey League, because I was the team doc for Connecticut for several years. You know, one of the things that I really loved about that was um, very few, if any, of the docs were women. And so, and those girls mm-hmm. also, very few of the coaches were women too. And to have um, to have athletes come in and actually want to talk about like how they could become an orthopedic surgeon. I, oh. I sort of felt like it was, um, a, we were, there was a whole bunch of like kind of breaking barriers and mm-hmm. um and like lifting each other up and, um, and hopefully just like modeling of like, what's the next step. So that's something I really enjoyed doing that there, with that too. Oh, that's special. Yeah. Um, in addition to all of your clinical responsibilities, all of your responsibilities as being, you know, a team physician for all of these various sports, you also have numerous leadership positions. And one of them is being the director for the center for women's sports health at NYU and I know that this program is in its infancy, but just can you explain what this organization is about? Sure. Well, so this, um, so the genesis of this really is that actually, just as we said that like children are not little adults, you know, mm-hmm. by the same token, women are not little men. And, right. um, and so, you know, I think for a long time, uh, the way that we educated orthopedic surgeons and the way that we did research about musculoskeletal problems um, you know, wasn't focused on women. And so, and I think that when we start now to look at outcomes for women athletes, you know, Mm -hmm. they are, they don't necessarily match up to those that we see in men. And so, um, you know, and so this was the recognition by NYU that we could do better in terms of serving our, our female athlete population. And so, um, and so we've put together, you know, a team of, so I'm of me, orthopedic surgeon, and then there's several, um, primary care sports medicine docs, as well as we've got affiliated um, physical therapists, nutritionists. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, again, it's uh, recognizing that it's not just the shoulder in room three, it's the, it's the athlete who has a, a whole host of, um, you know, of health considerations to, uh, mm-hmm. to be made again, to optimize, I think, to optimize performance and outcome. Um and so, uh, so it's a team of us that are working together. I mean, it's to, to take care of athletes. And I think one is to take care of athletes and female athletes in particular of all ages, abilities, levels. I mean, I think it's not just, 
hanging a shingle out and saying, you know, hey, elite athletes come our way. Right, I think we all, right. I think we all really enjoy taking care of elite athletes and sort of, you know, getting to um, brush with greatness. But I also think, um, you know, for me, getting and keeping, especially, you know, adolescent girls in sports is um, incredibly important because right. um, we know that the sport attrition happens like right around that adolescent time. It happens a lot more in females than males. But we mm-hmm. also know that the longer the girls stay active in sports, you know, the, the better it is for their self-esteem, the better it is, to, the, well, the more likely they are to end up in a C-suite. You know, all right. sorts of outcomes um, have been linked to continued participation in sports and physical activity. And so I think, um, you know, I, I think understanding that and putting together a team of people who like sort of passionately believe in that and work mm-hmm. towards just caring for that community, um, is what we do. So, so that's what the organization is. And then, and then just like anything else, in addition to clinical care, you know, we've got an educational mission and a research mission. And some of the first things that we've done, um, actually, I think you can see this as a webinar and it should be a, a paper coming out as well, but we put together a webinar about the peripartum athlete in the recognition that, you know, the vast majority of women at some point, or, you know, a lot of the country is made up of women, And many women at some point will, um, will become mothers or they, or, you know, and, and so you've got people, you know, you've got girls who may be mothers at some point in the future. You've got women who are trying to become pregnant. You've got women who are pregnant. You've got women who Mm -hmm. were pregnant, um, all of whom, you know, also should be physically active and want to be athletes. And yet, um, there's been very little research about specific musculoskeletal conditions that affect that population. And it's something that we really, as a musculoskeletal community, don't talk about a lot. And we also don't interface with the OBGYN community. And so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, um, like, especially with pelvic floor dysfunction, for example, um, you know, the OBGYNs will say this will get better and it sort of just never does. And, um, and so, but then there's not, there haven't traditionally been a lot of places for women to go. I think. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's the first thing I think we said, well, you know, everybody focuses on concussion and ACL and we can, you know, we can also excel and be, you know, masters at those conditions, but how can we also set ourselves apart? And I think saying, well, this is something that's, that obviously sets women apart and it's something that we should really be focusing on to improve, you know, women's musculoskeletal health. And so that's one of the first things that we've done. Um, as well as uh, back in back in the days when we could have in-person meetings, our first like really big um, continuing medical education meeting was called right. the Young Female Athlete, and it was very purposely multidisciplinary. And we had um, we talked about everything from um, like non non accidental violence mm-hmm. in sport um, to uh, relative energy deficiency in sport. You previously termed the female athlete triad, so. Um, I think just, just getting people who are passionate about it together in a room to, uh, to talk about the issues and their experiences and do collaborate on research and educational efforts is, is, you know, that's what drives improvement in patient care. And so that's really what that mm-hmm. center does. Nice. And I know that COVID has certainly put a wrench in many of, you know, the plans that you have for this, <laughs> but what are you hoping to be able to accomplish over the next, you know, two, five years with this? Well, I think we still, I think we want to build upon the educational efforts that we've done. Actually, that one, that course I just mentioned was incredibly well received. And so I'd like to be able to act, to, to have it become an annual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've started to do uh, some research. Actually, we're collaborating on a cool 
it's it sounds silly, but we're collaborating uh, with as a um, part of you know a, a multi um, institutional IRB on a study that just looks at sports bras. Because again, whoever right. asks about like sports bra fit, and what we're finding is that like actually, as I was mentioning, at sport attrition, a ton of girls like drop out of sports, and some of right around adolescence, and some of it is because the sport the, either they don't have access to a sports bra that's well fitted, or they mm-hmm. can't find one, and so it's just uncomfortable. Or, the, mm. or they're uncomfortable. And so, right. um, but so, so, tr- you know, I think trying to put our name out there as well as a, as a, as a institution and organization uh, that is interested in collaborating on like a larger scale. So right. I, it's, I think it's, those are the kinds of things that we will be doing to, uh, to, awesome. to build that center. Awesome. Very cool. In addition to um, the Center for Women's Sports Health at NYU, you are also the chair of the Women's Health Issues Advisory Board for the AOS. And so I was hoping you can just kind of talk about this advisory board, like who's on this board? What are you people doing? Like what's going on? Well, I'm sad to report to you (laughs) that, that, that actually, so that this, specific board has been there was a big organizational restructuring and uh this board actually combined forces with the diversity advisory board last year and so then i then i co-chaired the diversity advisory board um and now and and now um things are filtering out even more because you know the mission of the women's health advisory board uh, was really to say sort of what I alluded to earlier was that we don't, if we don't actually study women's health, then how are mm-hmm. we going to know if what we're doing works for them? And, right. and, 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 you know, the, where that came from was uh, every time I give this talk, it's, you know, this, this came actually after world war two when, um, you know, policies were put in place to protect vulnerable research populations. And it was this, um, purposeful and good hearted effort. Um, but it was also incredibly paternalistic. So we said, right. you know, we, we can't study women who might become pregnant. We can't study children because they're potentially, you know, vulnerable populations that, that research, you know, that, that to study. And so, mm-hmm. and so they were sort of systematically excluded. And then also, um, also because of hormonal variations, I think there was also a sense that it was going to be too difficult to study. And, mm-hmm. and this extended even to um, laboratory animals. And so a ton of the of laboratory animals actually are male rather than right. female, which is why we don't like to our translational research not, um, oftentimes doesn't actually translate into the real world. But mm-hmm. so this was done systematically. But then what we've realized is, well, uh-oh, we don't maybe we don't know as much as we think we know. And maybe outcomes mm-hmm. aren't as good. And and, you know, we can't just treat everybody the same and maybe the same surgery for the same diagnosis or the same rehab for the same diagnosis isn't isn't going to result in the same outcome. And how can we make right. this our, our care a little bit more individualized? Um, so that was really the goal of that was to say, listen, it is essential. It, it is essential for for us to to optimally take care of our patients to understand this stuff. And if mm-hmm. we don't even ask the questions um, you know, and educate ourselves, then, um, then we never will. And if you look actually at the number of, you know, orthopedic publications that, um, it's almost none of them have an a priori hypothesis that is sex-based. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, only about 30%, I feel like we're going to have to check my numbers on this, but, um, <laughs> before this goes prime time, <laughs> but no, how would we say a fraction, 
There you go. It's a port, a fraction. Um, doesn't even analyze the data. It doesn't even report mm. the data by male, female, um, mm. or uh, and then doesn't and in a, in a proportion also doesn't even analyze it as a function of sex. Um, mm. and or gender and those things are not the same and so you know the right. really the purpose of that advisory board was to educate um, ourselves to promote to promote research efforts that actually ask the questions and then um, and, and in that way to improve musculoskeletal health for women mm. and so and that's still being done I think it's just right. it's just it got rolled into um, something different <laughs> because because as you know and, and I think this sort of goes into our next topic the so the diversity advisory board for the academy is not mm-hmm. about women's health. It's not about, it's not really even about health disparities. It's really mm-hmm. about, hey, you know, only 6% at, you know, I know it's higher now, but 6% right. of practicing orthopedic surgeons are women. Now it's about 15% of residents are women. And so this is mm-hmm. great. We're making headway. But at the end of the day, that's still not reflective of the communities in which we practice. Right. Right. And so, um, and so really the diversity advisory board, and that's, that's just women. That's before we get to underrepresented minorities because orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery um, is, is an incredibly homogeneous field. And so, you know, the goal of the diversity advisory board was to really say, you know, again, we're going to best be able to take care of our patients if the makeup of our organization and our population of orthopedic surgeons reflects the communities in which we practice. And so, right. and, and, and so what, how do we, how do we make that happen mm-hmm. in, a, in a purposeful way? And how do we, and what are the metrics that we're going to monitor to make sure that we're making improvement? Cause it's something that I think has been talked about for a long time, but we really wanted right. to move the needle. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I have a thought and I, I support the Academy and everything that it does for the most part. Wouldn't some folks say that it's interesting that you decide to literally group these two boards together which is actually literally a sign of the fact that like these things might need special attention and special care. I don't I, know. That like that's honestly like my first thought when I hear it's like being combined together. It it's it is no longer it's so and then it it's gonna be uncombined. There was a huge restructuring and an effort mm-hmm. to really um I think there was a lot of waste actually in terms of right. our committee structure. And so this was part of a longer um like strategic plan. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the final outcome. I think that was a transitional time, but, but I think, um, but I appreciate what you say. Cause I, because, because (laughs) even though like in the, you know, in the Venn diagram, there is a little bit of overlap in, in, um, in those missions, but there's also a lot that, um, you know, that, that should be focused on independently. And so, and, and deserves to be, and, and, and deserves that. Right. I know. I'm being very high maintenance and asking very controversial topics. So I appreciate you answering the questions. (laughs) Um, I would love to move on to one of your kind of articles that really stood out to me, which was um, you were the senior author on an article entitled, uh, entitled Harassment, Discrimination and Bullying in Orthopedics, a Work Environment and Culture Survey that was published in the Yellow Journal in December of 2020. The list on, of authors on this article is very impressive and includes Dr. Julie Samora, Dr. Ann Van Heest, who's been on this podcast, Dr. Christy Weber, Dr. William Ross, and Dr. Tamara Huff, who I really, 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 all of these people are just so impressive and amazing. What was the inspiration 
for this investigation? So this came out, um, this was a, a, from the Diversity Advisory Board. So Dr. Van Heest and I were co-chairs for the Diversity Advisory Board. Oh, nice. And many of these She's were, awesome. um, me- you know, many of our, our co-authors were members mm-hmm. of the, well, and, and, that, and then this was also the year that um, Dr. Weber was Academy President. So, right. um, you know, I think, so I think this came out probably of a longer discussion of, you know, wanting to look at the culture of orthopedic surgery. But I think the thing that, that, um, shot it to the forefront was, uh, this was right around the hashtag me too movement. Right. And so, uh, that was happening in the U S but, you know, at the same time in, so the, the Royal, and I'm, I'm going to mess this up, but the Royal Australasian mm-hmm. college of surgeons, the racks mm-hmm. had had their, um, had sort of had a, a reckoning after a sexual harassment case. And they sort of looked within and did a survey and found, um, that the culture within orthopedic surgery in, in that country uh, was rife with these behaviors of discrimination and bullying, harassment, and sexual harassment, uh, mm-hmm. to the point that actually they've um, they not only have studied it at this point and reported on it, uh, the college actually issued an apology to its members. Mm-hmm. Um, and has now crafted a huge intervention, um, including including training about intervening if you are witnessing a negative behavior like this. And so, wow. um, and that that survey was what we basically based this survey, and this was a, a survey study uh, on. And um, and and I will also say, you know, the in England also the British Orthopedic Trainees Association has a hammer bullying out campaign. I mean, I think this is something that. Um, a lot of different conversations were had in different places across the world um, about, at the same time, just about like, hey, why don't we look at our organizational cultures? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you, you know, I will say if you go and read this article that it is um, its methodology is fraught in, in that um, this survey did not go out to the entire membership. It was mm-hmm. it went out to uh, to the to women. It went out to under, underrepresented minorities and it went out to some controls. Um, and so I don't think it's fair to, when we look at like the percentages, it's not, it's, I don't think it's fair to say that necessarily. I think really this is, you know, that results are helpful in, in, in us being able to say, wow, a lot of our members are reporting that they experience these behaviors in the workplace. Right. Um, and, and so, and, and that, um, and, and there's, you know, and if you really like, you know, tease it out, like there's, there are a ton of other questions. It was a long questionnaire. Mm-hmm. Um, but so at the end of the day, like this is in our house, right? This is our, our culture ha- has, um, can be characterized as being one that sort at least tolerates, if not propagates discrimination and bullying, harassment mm-hmm. and sexual harassment. And so, and, and so this is, and we can do better. Right. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's the real um, that was the real purpose of that study was to say, like, let's look within and see what we find. I'll right. tell you a, a study I was involved. This actually has not been published uh, yet. It has it's just been uh, presented at POSNA this past spring. Um, but so the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America, I'm the chair of the wellness committee um, for nice. that organization. And uh, wellness is something that we've been uh, talking about. And we'd already started to look at, at burnout and the, the, num- mm-hmm. the sort of rates of burnout within POSNA. Uh, which approximate 40%. Um, and we and the people yeah. who are more likely to report burnout are females rather than males and people aged uh, 40 to 50, no, mm, 40 to 59. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that like 
that like late mid or I guess early to mid. Right. At, all right, 40 to 59, in that, in there. Uh, Just in that range. In, in, that, in that part of your career. It's not, it's, <laughs> it's middle, it's the middle part of your career. Right, right. But so anyway, we were able to say, well, wow, um, we know that women and people in this age group are more likely to be burnout. That was our first study that was published. But the, the second one, we, we used this exact same survey that was, that was given to, because um, it was part of a big collaborative effort, actually, the survey it was um, RJOS, the Perry Initiative, the Diversity oh. Advisory Board, mm-hmm. POSNA. It was a, a huge number of sort of stakeholders were involved in that project. But um, so the same survey, in addition to the uh, burnout questions, was administered to the entire POSNA membership. So that's nice, right? Because then right. It, it actually is reflective of the entire membership. And basically what we found was that um, we also, you know, people also did report that they, um, and I think about about 40% that they'd experienced either or discrimination, bullying, sexual harassment, or harassment in the workplace. And that ex- the experience of any of those behaviors, we were able to significantly associate it with um, then reported burnout. Mm-hmm. And so, and so then we can say, well, wow, that, you know, our cult, like our culture is actually a problem. Like our, our culture right. is making us sick. And so, um, and, and then, and then it becomes even more essential to start to talk about, well, how we can change that. And certain, and, and certainly there are other contributors to burnout and we're starting to look at those as well. But this was really just about saying what, what does our culture look like? How might, um, our culture pose barriers and in fact, our t- barriers to improving our, our diversity amongst orthopedic mm-hmm. surgeons, how, you know, how could this be really working against us and ultimately against our patients? And so, and therefore, why is it so important to, to, to think about how to change it? Right. No, I mean, well, first of all, thank you so much for doing all this work. I think it's something that needs to be done. And I think it's something that's been just, I felt like built up for so long and we're just starting, starting to, to hit, hit, you know, the, the surface of it all. And I think something that I always think about when I hear about these research projects that demonstrate that burnout exists, like 40% is like, we're almost at half, right? And the fact that so many people experience gender um, discrimination or any type of discrimination, sexual harassment, harassment in the workplace, what can we do? Right. Like, I feel like there's always this talk and we're just and of course, everyone knows like this is bad. We need to actually make some changes. What is what is going to be that moment that inspires the change or what is it that's going to be done in order to actually make this better? I guess I would say two points. I mean, so if I knew all the answers, I'd um, I'd have more titles probably. But um, (laughs) (laughs) I I know it's a tough question. I got on my soapbox a little bit. I honestly, I think, um, the practice of openly engaging in collaborative discussions, right. I think, um, we, the Academy sponsored a webinar actually that was called mentoring in the hashtag me too era back in Mm. the spring. And I presented some of this work there. And I think because then what, what happens is that people get so afraid that they're going to be called out or can't, you know, a cancel culture that, um, that actually we're, I think we're losing, um, out on the opportunity to really form some strong, like mentee mentor relationships. So I think, um, I think everybody has to go into interactions with an open mind and not Mm -hmm. thinking the worst. And if, and if something doesn't feel right, then that's the next step, right. is, Is then talking about it. And I think that's why, 
um, again, the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons, I think that's why bystander, like not only training people how to not just be a bystander, but to actually right. either intervene or speak up, um, not just for somebody else, but for themselves is essential. And then, and the next thing is also about um, transparent reporting processes. So, and, and I will also tell you, you know, POSNA, um, we actually didn't find a ton of sexual harassment that what that was not what was even though that was it sort of came up from the hashtag me Too movement mm -hmm. that that wasn't the biggest finding it was a lot more um harassment bullying and discrimination mm -hmm. um and those are things that um if you sort of think about you know it's, it's sort of like and this is this is the the conversation too is like where's the line it's like sort of mm -hmm. what it's sort of what is our how we riff with each other Mm -hmm. Um, and if you take that away, then you've taken all the fun out of, uh, work. Right? right. But so, and, and everybody's line is different. And so really, I think that's why open conversations and feeling like you have the right to say like, that makes me uncomfortable. And then to have the other person just receive that in a, okay, like, you know, right. okay, I'm sorry. And we all move on. Yeah. Um, and it happens at the time, you know, I, I think that, I, I think that that's where to start. Mm-hmm. No, that's awesome. That was a very tough question and I really appreciate your answer. So thank you. I'm just, I'm firing all the tough questions at you because you're, you just have done so much. And I know that we've talked a lot about what you've done, both clinically, being a team physician, all of your leadership roles. And I was hoping you can talk about what your goals are for the future. And I know, again, COVID is, COVID is COVID, but what are your goals right now? Uh, well, in terms of, uh, well, let's see, this is it. I mean, I think research goals, what I usually say is that I, I, cause if you look at my CV, it's a little bit, I'll, I, I sort of dabble. Um, <laughs> I, I know a lot of stuff, but I also, it's because I get interested in a question and I want to use my research to, um, make the world better. Right? right. And so, um, and so if we, if that means talking about burnout or if it means talking about workplace culture or um, I was on the advocacy for POSNA early on mm -hmm. and I got, you know, I, and I wrote a paper about firearms injuries in kids because um, it's something that we really, th that should be something that we advocate, you know, actively against. And yet we kind of don't because it's like politically right. fraught. Um, and so, uh, so those are the kinds of things I get interested in doing. Um, so, you know, uh, things I have kind of going that, that it has been a hard year to get research going, but one, um, is a musculoskeletal health survey for our transgender patients to try to really mm -hmm. understand um, unique, you know, unique problems, and so that we can, um, well, ideally prevent them, but again, optimally treat them for that population. Right. So sometimes I, I kind of am like a ping pong ball, and I go where I'm, where I'm, you know, bounced. But yeah. um, but that's in general. I get interested in a question if I think that it, you know, that what we find can be used to steer conversation or, or create conversation that then will generate, um, you know, change. Nice. Very cool. Um, Dr. Carter, I know you have things to do, places to be. So I would love <laughs> to enter into my segment called the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. So my first final five question is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Uh, you know, I usually say, and this I do love, uh, an ACL reconstruction that is mm -hmm. bicycle or growth plate sparing, the, the mm -hmm. iliotibial, using the iliotibial band. Right. I really like that um, 
for several reasons. First, uh, the anatomy is really cool, actually, mm -hmm. like the dissections that we do. Uh, and it's a combination of arthroscopic and open, which is pretty fun. Uh, two, I call it, it's one of those like cookbook surgeries. So like if you do all the steps at the end, you get a cake and it's, and it's like kind of, um, it's, it's just very like immediately rewarding. Right. But then unlike, you know, the adolescents, uh, and some of our older kids who have really high retail rates, this surgery doesn't have as high retail rates. And so like mm -hmm. these kids by and large, like do kind of awesome. And right. so, um, like the very first one I ever did as an attending a year later, I got a picture and of course he was not wearing his brace, which kills me, but the kid's <laughs> playing soccer and he's the BMX champion of his state. Right. Oh, so, wow. um, those kids like, so I think, um, it's, it's fun to actually do and teach mm -hmm. and everybody's always excited to see it. Cause they're still, you know, they're pretty rare. Right. Um, right. It's a very satisfying and like immediately gratifying surgery, but then it's also one that like they, they just do great. And so right. I, I really enjoy that one. That's awesome. What are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations or invited speaking engagements? So honestly, the one I usually talk about is ACL and kids. And it's because mm -hmm. um, I've written the, with one of my old partners, Dr. Melinda Sharkey, uh, we've written the OKU uh, review for it for the last oh, two nice. OKU PEDS books. Mm -hmm. which is so much work <laughs> and you pull and you have to pull all the art. Right. But so like, right. you know, what's going on in the literature better than anybody because you've just right. looked at all of it. And so, um, and it is pretty, and, and it is an interesting topic, right. To think to all the different um, nuances of treating ACL reconstruction in kids. So that's mm -hmm. the one I often, I often will start with. Um, although I, I also um, for a long time, I, I talk about sex-based differences because in sports medicine, mm -hmm. um, because, you know, things like shoulder instability and concussion, hip impingement, you know, and, and ACL, um, obviously, but you know, there's, um, there's so many examples of sex-based differences in, in, in what I do sports medicine that, um, we, again, I, I feel like we have to educate and talk about, and we have to get people, um, we have to get people interested in, I will tell you, I gave a talk at POSNA um, more than five years ago that was called sex-based differences and they changed it to gender-based differences. And I was mm. like, I love that you did that because they're not like, they're not the same thing, even though we, right. we do use them interchangeably sort of colloquially, like that's not the scientific, it's not scientific. And so, and like, let's just start there. And, and I remember, um, you know, early on sort of giving those talks and eyes kind of roll or, or they just close um, or the room empties out. Nobody's right. really interested. But now, you know, people are like everybody is doing is trying to find differences and figuring mm -hmm. out, you know. So uh, that's something that I also will talk about a lot at Grand Rounds. Um, and now more recently, it's wellness. Right. Nice. Nice. What is your favorite story slash memory? as an orthopedic surgeon, this is usually one of the toughest ones. Uh, oh, you know, no, I have one. Um, oh, oh, good. So actually it's, so this is a, so I used to always tell uh, the kids as they go to sleep in the operating room, I tell them stories about my dog, Lucy, um, mm -hmm. and how bad she is and how like she licks my armpits and she steals cheese off the counter. And, you know, I just, <laughs> I tell them stories and oh, this God. one little girl, uh, and she, she actually, she was just having a biopsy, uh, and cause she was an oncology patient, mm -hmm. but just like fell in love with the stories about my dog. And so she in, came in and brought, so brought my dog, uh, toys. 
and she Aww. that she bought herself. I mean, and she was like eight or nine. Right. Um, and uh, and this sort of grew. And so I would give her toys about Lucy. And then she, when she was in the hospital, I brought the dog in to the cancer ward. And the, the story also ends happily. This child's doing great. Right, um, right. But so, uh, and there's pictures of all the kids in the cancer ward. Like, I mean, I, and I had to go through all the vet things. Like, I, it, was, right. it was legit. Um, like holding up the dog's ears and looking inside. And it was, um, so that's my, and, and I, and she was actually, she was an artist too. So I've got a nice uh, image of me that she drew that everybody who sees it notes that um, the picture's bustier than I am in person. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my favorite one. <laughs> oh my God. That's adorable. That's so, what type of dog? Uh, she's just a mutt. She's a bad oh, dog. That's what I say. Oh, that's awesome. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? Uh, I love sports. So uh, I can't run as much as I used to, but for a long time I did marathons and, um, you know, I would try to, and then my second thing I love is, uh, is traveling. So like, and then mm -hmm. I was trying to combine them. So for a big birthday, I ran the Rome marathon and, oh, wow. um, so those are the two things and, uh, and, you know, spending time with your family, but ideally right. if you can put all those things in one, like travel, running and spending time with your family, then <laughs> you've nailed it. Oh, that's awesome. And then my last question for you, Dr. Carter is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? <sighs> two things I usually say, uh, I might've already said them, uh, ask questions at like ask, you know, as you're making decisions, ask a lot of questions and ask the same questions to a lot of different people, because you want to arm yourself with as much information as you can so that you're prepared, you know, to make the choice you're making, but then, mm -hmm. and then, and then to do a great job, you know, because, because you are prepared because you know what to expect. So right. that's one is ask questions. And then the other one is, um, what I already sort of said before about door, when, you know, the doors never really fully close. I feel like, um, I feel like people get really stressed about, well, what if I don't get the residency I want? What if I don't get mm -hmm. the fellowship that I want? What if this doesn't happen? And at the end of the day, if you know, well, Hey, I want to work with kids and I want to work with kids in sports, then, you know, you're going to be able to find a pathway into that that fits you. And so mm -hmm. I think, um, I think, I guess I would say, uh, and this is like a, do what I say, not as I do, but try not to catastrophize it's, you know, right. and, and just, and just know it's nothing's the end of the world. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for sharing your stories and your expertise. <laughs> and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Cordelia Carter. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe. <laughs>